Hebrews 12, 14 through 17. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. The word of the Lord. Okay, so we are uh, back for my part. And it was very uh, gracious of Jillian to uh, say that it's only the little kids that have trouble paying attention during my sermon. I appreciated that a lot. We are continuing our series on uh, the seven deadly sins, and we're looking at anger, wrath this morning. We've been watching uh, Parks and Rec in the Prentice household, at least uh, Katie and I and um, Elliot, for the most part. Abby will watch some as well, but my favorite character by far is Ron Swanson, and he's the, the lovable, kind of grumpus, libertarian. He hates the fact that the government funds his job, and he wants to do a terrible job so that he won't have a job and the government won't do anything else. But he's very libertarian, very literal, and he has this wonderful quote. He says, I hate metaphors. That's why my favorite book is Moby Dick. No frou-frou symbolism, just a good, simple tale about a man who hates an animal. <laughs> of course, it, it is an extended metaphor, right? It's not literal. It is a long meditation on anger and on wrath and how acidic it is to ourselves and to our world. And this basic narrative of Moby Dick gets recycled into multiple other novels and films, primarily space films, because we have a lot more of those than we do have nautical films. So you see this kind of trope recycled. And one of the best films that it was recycled in is Wrath of Khan, 1982 Star Trek movie, the second in the original series. Now, it was playing at the Hollywood Theater about five years ago, and I inv invited a friend of mine who was an in-towner. They moved away a while back, but I said, hey, you want to go see Star Trek Wrath of Khan with me? It's playing in the theater. And I thought that would be enough to convey to him, you know, that this was an older film that had been brought back uh, and had been put in theaters for a special run. And he was a little bit sci-fi oriented, so I didn't feel the need to explain that this movie was from 1982 and not the brand new rebooted Star Wars series, or Star Trek series. And uh, the second of those was coming out in a couple of weeks. And so from the get-go, the intro of this movie is just drenched in that 80s kind of digital disco aesthetic, and so you know right from the beginning, this is not a new film. And I can see him sort of like doing this and looking at the movie and looking at me, but I'm entranced because I love this movie, and I've never seen it on the big screen, and so I'm trying to kind of block him out. And uh, finally, he just leans over and he was, says, what is this? <laughs> 
what did you invite me to? And he stayed and sat through the film, and he loved it because it's awesome. And it's a fantastic film, and it is basically a reworking of Moby Dick in space. Now, Khan is played in a very hammy way by Ricardo Montalban of Fantasy Island fame. For anyone who's 45 years or older, you'll understand that. But he has this amazing role. He's got his 80s mullet, even though it's the 23rd century. And he's on a quest for vengeance against Captain Kirk, who marooned him on a dead planet. And he has sworn if he ever gets a chance, he will get his revenge. Well, they managed to steal this Federation starship, so they can go anywhere. They can start a new life, start a new colony, and he can be the king of the world. But instead, he takes this starship and his crew on this pursuit of Captain Kirk, and he quotes Moby Dick, but he changes the location data, and he says, he tasks me, I shall have him. I'll chase him around the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round perdition's flame before I give him up. He can't give up this obsessive quest. And like Ahab, he destroys his ship, he destroys his crew, he loses his sanity. All of these things are more or less important than satisfying his rage, finding a solution to his anger. And in one last attempt, as the other starship, Captain Kirk's, is making a slow getaway, he sets the self-destruct button, and I won't kill the ending because you all need to go watch it, but he quotes Moby Dick again, and he says, for hate's sake, I spit at thee. From hell's heart, I stab at thee. And these were Ahab's words. And from hell's heart, indeed, because that's where wrath and rage and selfish anger live and bubble up from. And those, those things seek to possess us. Those things seek to put us on a quest to self-destruction. Now, Melville was a student of the Bible. He knows the stories. He's informed by the stories. And he knows how the Bible tells of this acidic wrath and how it eats people alive. And the writer of Hebrews references one of those stories, the one of Jacob and Esau, the twins born to Isaac and Rebekah. And as you may know, you may not know, but the firstborn in the ancient world gets everything, no questions asked. They get the estate, they get the wealth, they get the name, they get the prestige, always. No other, no conditions. But Rebecca, the mother, she gets this message from God that says, basically, this is going to be reversed, that Jacob is going to serve, or Jacob will rule over Esau. But she doesn't tell Isaac. She has this big vision and doesn't tell her husband. It's a little odd. But in that day, he probably wouldn't have listened, so maybe it makes sense. And this isn't how things work. And Isaac is kind of partial to Esau anyway. 
So what she does is she waits until Isaac is super old and blind, and she concocts this plan. She sends Jacob into Esau dressed like his brother. So we should note here that Jacob is no longer a child. Jacob is 40 or 50 years old, and his mom is still dressing him and tasking him to go in and go through with this plan. And so she drapes goat skins on his neck and his hands because Esau is very hairy, and I guess that's going to fool the old man. It's a banana's plan. It makes no sense. It's like something out of the Little Rascals or Three Stooges, but it apparently works. And Isaac blesses Jacob, and without knowing it, of course, confirms God's original plan that he had revealed to Rebekah many decades earlier. Well, then Esau comes in, and he learns what's happened, and there's, there's no givebacks to this thing. You can't just do it again to Esau and say, well, I didn't mean that. And so Esau learns what's happened, and he bursts out, it says in Genesis, with a loud and a bitter cry. He seethed with bitterness. And ominously, Rebekah tells Jacob to leave, to be careful, because why? Esau is consoling himself, comforting himself with thoughts of killing Jacob. He's been wronged, and he believes he's entitled now to the harm of others. This new, this distorted kind of life begins to bubble up inside him. Wrath wants to have him. And his life takes shape in such a way that the new goal, the grabbing happiness means basically securing a successful murder. This is the bitter root that Hebrews is talking about. You see, wrath longs to extract entitlement from someone else. What we feel we are entitled to that's been taken, we now feel emboldened. We have the right to extract it from someone else. And our happiness now becomes based upon whether we can perform that, whether we can secure that. You see, for Esau, his father's blessing was everything. His estate, the riches, the life that it would give him, that was his life. And now he will take life from the one who is responsible for taking his. This bitter root, as Hebrews says, grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now we see here a hint, at least, of the sort of dual nature of anger and wrath, which I'm using somewhat interchangeably that anger is not itself evil. It's not evil in the abstract. But it gets aroused when something that we value, something that we love, is threatened. And so it can serve a very defensive, protective purpose. And the Bible talks about God's own anger and His own wrath in very positive ways. The wrath of God is a protective thing. We have a hard time with that because we tend to think of wrath as sort of unjustified rage. It's this revenge type of fantasy. It is the wrath of Khan. It's someone 
flying around in space to exact revenge by blowing up their crew and killing their own. The wrath of Khan is is anger as a form of pleasure-seeking, and that's sort of how, at least I think, probably most of us think about wrath, and that's why we get uncomfortable when we read about the wrath of God in the Bible. But wrath is a function of God's love. It's how He extends His love to those that He has made, to His creation. It is protective, you see, of the weak, of what is good, of those that can't protect themselves, of those who are threatened by a broken world that is spiraling in such a way that threatens their existence, threatens their good. It moves, you see, wrath does, against what is evil, against what threatens God's children. And we would expect nothing less from any good, reasonable parent. You see, not only is anger not always wrong and always sinful, but it can be wrong not to be angry. Anyone who isn't angry sometimes isn't paying attention to the way that the world is and the state of affairs because there is so much heartache in our world. There's so much violence. There's so much sadness. There's so many examples every day of the strong taking advantage of the weak. And if we're not angry, we're either not paying attention or our anger is so misdirected to where we are so much more angry about traffic than we are about famine. And that's where anger hooks us. It's when it guards our self-interest to the point to where when our self-interest is blocked, we lash out at whoever and whatever is blocking us. But see, these things that are going wrong in the world and the weak that are going hungry and poverty and famine and all of these things, God's wrath is directed towards that. And that should make us happy. That should make us glad that He is accounting for these things in His world. That His wrath is towards the incursion of evil into His world and against His children. And so maybe it would be better for us to think about Uh, our modern word, our modern understanding of justice. When you think about wrath, you can almost think of justice. It is bringing justice to bear upon unjust situations. It is setting things right, and that is exactly what Jesus came to do. You see, what, what Jacob had done, what Rebecca had done, wasn't right in the purest sense. It wasn't right in terms of strategy. Though the final outcome was God's design, Esau had every right, you see, to be angry because he had been deceived by this strategy. Jacob was a very devious person, and this shows up throughout the narrative of Jacob's life. And not to mention that he has a mom who favors one over him, favors Jacob over himself. That's not right. And at some level, he has a right to be upset. He has a right to be angry, not about the dictates of God and the final outcome, but about this devious strategy that Rebekah and Jacob concoct. But you see, Esau, it turns out, wasn't enraged at injustice. 
His was a wrath born of self-interest. He loved money. He loved his belly. He loved his standing as number one. And he was going to kill Jacob because Jacob took these things from him. At some level, there was an injustice in the strategy, but that is not what he's fixated on. He is fixated on bringing harm to Jacob because he feels blocked from his life love. Now, the narrator gives us a little bit of a twist, but you have to be paying attention because the character it comes through falls into the background a little bit because it's at the end of his life and it's where Isaac exits the stage, as it were. But the narrator here sneaks in a very important contrast. Because Isaac is more acted upon here in this stage, and it's right before he's going to die. He's somewhat powerless. But he grounds this narrative, and he grounds this set of circumstances in not his own interest in the way that he's been blocked, but in God's interest and the story that God is writing. You see, Isaac, too, had his heart set on something. Here he is in his deathbed, and he finally gets to give his blessing to his eldest son. He gets to give his house, his family, his flock under under the supervision of his most beloved son. This is how things are supposed to be. And he's blocked, his hopes are dashed, just like Esau. But while Esau weeps, bitter cries, and he vows to kill Jacob, Isaac, however, Isaac trembles. He trembles. This word tremble is sort of, if you can imagine a tornado touching down in front of you and you're driving towards it, that feeling that you get, that feeling of powerlessness, the feeling of awe that this just happened and I can't believe it. And you tremble. You're afraid. That is what is happening to Isaac. He is looking at these circumstances and he is saying, I can't control what is going on around me. The same word is used in Exodus when God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and it's this awesome, fearsome type of event, and the Israelites are down at the base of the mountain, and they see this happening, but they have no control over it. They don't know if God is striking Moses down, and he's coming for them next, or this is a gracious thing. They don't know, and they tremble. Everyone in the camp trembles because there's something out there that is so fearsome and awesome that they can't control. Isaac realizes he's in the presence of a power that is beyond his control. And instead of saying, woe is me, and crying out with bitter tears out of self-interest, he trembles. Esau sees his life going in a different direction than what he thought was best for him. He lashes out. He seeks destructive ways to correct it, to change the outcome. Isaac realizes the very same thing, that he's not the master of his house anymore, that he can't control the outcome of his life, that he can't dictate to circumstance. God's promises, you see, aren't coming through in the way that he thought 
He's believed that this is the way it will happen his entire life. And yet he doesn't fight it. He doesn't become enraged. He doesn't lash out. He gives up. He relents. He trembles before God. And so he rests. So he has peace. He surrenders so much to God that even though he was so embittered at Esau getting duped and he getting duped and taking this birthright from Esau, he goes and he meets with Jacob. This is in the next chapter. And he says, may God's promises descend through you. He understands that things have changed. Esau, you see, doesn't tremble. He gets mad. He gets vengeful because his life is out there. His love is out there. And he's got to secure it. He's got to extract happiness from the circumstances of life. He's got to make it happen. He's got to protect his rights. He's got to secure the blessing. And you see this undercurrent of wrath, this root of bitterness take over, and it rules his life. So how do we respond? That's the narrative. That's the setup. And what I think it's telling us is that this root threatens all of us this morning, and it's perhaps growing and has grown in the foundational places of your life, and what do you do about it? Do you just say, well, I'm just not going to get angry anymore? When that person cuts me off, when someone treats me unfairly at work, I'm just going to grin and bear it, and I'm going to act. I'm going to pretend as if it doesn't affect me. That's stoicism. That's pathology, actually. That's not grace. What Hebrews says is that you prevent this root of bitterness from taking root by see to it that no one falls short of karma. No one falls short of the grace of God. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Friends, we have, to li- we have to deal with anger, wrath, rage, resentment, bitterness, where it lives. And it lives under the surface. It doesn't live in our behavior. It manifests itself in our behavior. And anger and rage can flower from the root in a variety of ways. Outbursts, yelling, flying off the handle, road rage. Trolling social media, these are kind of like the stereotypical ways that we describe anger. It's external, it's behavioral, but these are symptoms. And we can't just curb the symptoms. We can't just curb the behavior. In fact, some of the nicest, most polite people that you know are the most angry with life, and they've simply learned to control it. They've simply learned to behave You always hear about serial killers. Well, he was such a nice young man. He was so polite. I would have never thought him capable. You see, the seething anger and bitterness and rage was bubbling, but they learned to hide it. Anger can, of course, flourish in yelling and outbursts of rage, but it can flourish also in moral politeness trying to control your world by being nice, trying to control your world by hiding your anger. 
But it starts, you see, whatever the manifestation is, it starts in a heart that feels blocked. It starts in a root that feels entitled to something, and then something intervenes, someone intervenes, and now you're enraged, and you got to fix it. When we attach our lives to something, and then the world, a person, God, might behave differently than we expect and blocks us from what we perceive we want, if we feel conspired against, we get enraged. But we get enraged because we've attached the root of happiness to something that we must control, we must have, or else. And if we live in a karmic world, we might behave ourselves in order to kind of secure karma, the benefits. We're trying to control the outcome. And friends, Christians do do this too, because a lot of American theology is fundamentally karmic. You do this and that happens. If I behave, then I can secure God's approval of me. That we move through the world seeking to appease God by doing the right things, by believing the right things. And some of the angriest people I've ever met are very moral Christians. Some of the angriest people are some of the most theologically well-read people that you'll ever meet. You see, both wrath and grace operate at the root level, not the behavioral level. Wrath and grace manifests itself at the behavioral level, but it doesn't go backwards. Organically, things go from the root, not from the reverse. You can't just pretend, friends, to not be angry. That's pathological. And some of you might need to go out and have your Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump moment, you know, where he goes up to the crow's nest in this violent storm and he starts yelling and raging at who? At God. This is not how life is gone. How life is gone is not how it was meant to be. And he comes down, you know, a changed man. He's got this serene look on his face. And it's a funny moment in the film, but I'm serious. You might need to go yell at God in order to deal with your anger. God can take it. In fact, he's given us a lot of prayers that kind of invite us to do that because it comes out to him and it doesn't come out to one of his creatures that he loves that we harm through our rage. You see, again, that self-protective instinct. He says, bring it on. (laughs) Bring it to me so it doesn't hurt someone else. And maybe we need to be angry at God and express that so that we can understand His grace, so that we can receive His grace. And grace is like kryptonite to selfish anger. When we begin to realize that we can't control our world, when we realize our smallness, when we realize our lostness, when we realize our sin and that God loves us anyway, then we tremble. You see, grace is like lightning. It's fearsome. It's scary because we have to let go. We should tremble at grace because it threatens our sense of self-righteousness. But when we tremble, we get grace. And we realize that God is not 
fundamentally angry. But in love, He comes down to enfold you. In love, He comes down to invite you into a world of grace, not of karma, not of nihilism, not of indifference, but a world that is broken, yes, but a world that He is committed to fix, just as He's committed to fix you and me. And we see in this, we see in His entrance into Jerusalem that grace comes down, that God comes down. We don't live up to it. And that God is for you. And He is working for your good. So you don't have to balance the scales. You don't have to be defensive and neurotic and angry, always looking out for slights and always responding in rage when you feel that someone has blocked you. You don't have to strive. You don't have to acquire. You don't have to control. Even when someone gets the best of you, you don't have to extract payment from them in the form of anger. The more that we say, you owe me, the more that we hold debts over other people's heads, that debt becomes acidic to us. It hurts us. The poorer we get. But what the gospel says is that though we have wronged God, He doesn't hold it over our heads. Though we've been unfaithful to Him, instead of choosing to make us pay, He pays our debt. He chooses to make us whole, to to forgive us. And so as we approach Easter this next weekend, as we follow Jesus through, we follow him to what? To the cross where he says, it is finished. And all of the scales have been balanced, including yours. And so you can let go. You don't have to do that anymore. Love gets angry at the evil that's eating you from the inside out. Love gets angry at your anger because it's making you poor. It's hurting you. But insofar as we understand the fundamental love of God, is if that's our root, if that's our summary insight, then we can forgive and we can let go of our wrath and of our anger. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make us fundamentally um, people who have a root of grace, a root of mercy, a root of love that you have extended to us and whereby we extend to others in order to make your deeds, make your goodness known to the world. I pray that we would not be content just to be moral performers, to operate at the pretense level, the behavior level, but that as we come to this table, that you would, in fact, work your grace deep within us, deep inside our personality and all of the things that we think are true and false about this world. Would you reorient us to what is really true, and what is really false. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.